You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. One of the factors that brought logical positivism down in the end was an increasing awareness as we've said, of the many uses, many kinds of uses of language, that language is a much more complicated instrument than the scientific community maybe had realized. This was brought to public attention and philosophical attention, especially by Ludwig Wittgenstein, who had himself been a defender of the earlier forms of logical atomism and had, for a time anyway, been one of the darlings of the Vienna Circle. Wittgenstein had retired from philosophy for a time after he published the Tractatus. He became uh, served in the war for a time, and after that he became a school teacher in Austria for many years. But when G.E. Moore vacated the chair of moral philosophy at Oxford, many people wanted Wittgenstein as his replacement, and he was persuaded to return to the philosophy profession. And to the disappointment of his earlier fans, however, he recanted most of his former opinions, the opinions he had voiced in the Tractatus, and he steadfastly refused to write or publish anything further. His students took notes of his lectures, however, and these were eventually collected and published after his death under the title Philosophical Investigations. Now, the style of the investigations was completely opposite to that of the Tractatus, the earlier work. The investigations are totally unsystematic. They're exceedingly cryptic in places. They're very aphoristic. They're just little excerpts, maybe one or two sentences. So this presents multiple problems of interpretation for scholars of Wittgenstein, for students of his thought, and for those of us just looking on from outside, as it were. But I think that there is some agreement about what some of the general themes are of the later Wittgenstein's thought, some of his arguments, some of his um, part of his philosophical outlook here. And it was still a focus on language, all right, but now Wittgenstein feels that his former view of language and how it derives its meaning somehow by picturing things in the world was totally, totally misguided. It was hopelessly oversimplified and so forth. And he instead turns to this theory that the meaning of a term is its use, that we don't know what a word means or what a sentence or a phrase means unless we can understand the situation, the circumstances in which it's being used, who's saying it, why they're saying it, what they're trying to do, and so forth. Even words that might have seemed to be sort of paradigm cases of picturing something, like the word water. Um, you can think of many different uses of that word in um, just that one term, depending on who's saying it. Somebody could be saying water or water or water. I mean, maybe they're asking for water. Maybe they're rejoicing over finding water. Maybe they're trying to teach the term to somebody. And depending on what they're doing, as it were, that's going to tell us what the meaning is of what they're trying to say. Maybe they're complaining about the quality of the wine, for all I know. We don't know what they're trying to tell us, as it were, what the meaning is until we see the context of use. Now, if I'm at the pediatrician with one of my children, with my daughter, and she points to the thing around the doctor's neck, and I say to her, stethoscope, then I'm obviously trying to teach her the meaning of the term. And it's pretty close to the way logical atomists would take uh, the meaning of terms. That is, this term picks out this object. 
But if a doctor turns to the nurse and says stethoscope, it's very unlikely that the doctor wants the nurse to learn a new word or that the doctor is demonstrating her own knowledge of the term stethoscope or something like that so that the nurse would say, oh, that's good, doctor, yes, stethoscope. That would be the totally wrong response in that context. So we have to understand the context of use, says Wittgenstein, in order to understand the meaning of terms, even of simple one word ready in the language. And he moves to a view of language where it's, again, it's evaluated in a more holistic way. Wittgenstein calls these, these larger schemes, you might say conceptual schemes or language practices or whatever, he calls them language games. He says, our statements could be used in so many different contexts and each one of these is its own, has its own criteria for interpreting its own uh, rules and so forth. So there are rules of the game. I mean, that's the analogy with games. Each game has rules. The rules can sometimes be adjusted within a game so that you don't have to run all the bases or something like that if you're only playing with two or three people and so on. But it has rules, and if you alter them too much, you're no longer playing the same game. On the other hand, we don't assess the rules of the game somehow from outside the game. You um, argue about the rules within the game. So that's the analogy here, that there are countless different kinds of games. As he puts it, there are countless different kinds of use of what we call symbols, words, sentences. And this multiplicity is not something fixed, given once for all, but new types of language, new language games, as we may say, come into existence and others become obsolete and get forgotten. Here the term language game is meant to bring into prominence the fact that the speaking of language is part of any activity or a form of life. Review the multiplicity of language games in the following examples and in others. Giving orders and obeying them. Describing the appearance of an object or giving its measurements. Constructing an object from a description, a drawing. Reporting an event. Speculating about an event. Play acting. Singing catches. Guessing riddles. Uh, you get the idea. Uh, his list goes on and on. In fact, it's a very long list, different kinds of what he would call language games that are part of various forms of life. Now, how to assess these different games? Wittgenstein says you can only really assess the game from within. You can say, well, this game is played. So there's a kind of descriptive thing there. You can say, well, people talk like this and so forth. It has its own rules for what could be said, what will be considered reasonable, what will be just ruled out and so forth. And each form of life, says Wittgenstein, has its own ways of proceeding. And you can't really judge which one is better than, than others. I mean, they sort of have different purposes and so forth. So scientific language, you might say, is one of these games. Scientists have their own rules about what would be acceptable, what statements are admissible, kind of objectivity they're striving for and so forth. But that's not the only use of language. And science language game changes over time too maybe what kinds of observations are going to count as really establishing a hypothesis, what sorts of instruments are going to be used to uh, the uh, results will be allowed in as significant and so forth. You may recall that when the telescope was first invented there were many very reasonable people who didn't think that the the data that the telescope showed should be trusted. It's not a direct observation after all, it's by way of instrumentation you'd have to have confidence in the theory of optics and so forth that went behind it in order to think it's giving you an accurate picture of stars and planets. Now to us I suppose that seems silly or naive or something like that but as new instruments are developed we arrive at the same problem over and over again. 
Now, what about religious language then? What are the consequences here for moral language or religious language? Now, some people were just delighted by Wittgenstein's suggestion that all kinds of different language games abound in life because you could treat religious language as another language game, another form of life, religious form of life. And so religious language is, has its own rules for what we can say and what we wouldn't say and so forth, its own ways of proceeding. And these cannot be judged from outside of it. It's only believers, in a way, within the game that can decide what's to be asserted, what's reasonable, and so forth. Now, I suppose this had a good side. I mean, the good side was that faith claims could be made again, you might say, with impunity. I mean, believers could say that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, and so forth, maker of heaven and earth, and claim that they were really asserting something. They were making an assertion. They weren't just expressing feelings. They weren't just trying to look through a blick or something like that. No, they really were making a claim, because within that game, that's what you do. You make these claims about God being almighty and so forth. Unfortunately, the bad side was there was no way to justify, of course, religious claims. Within the game, they're, you could say they're justified because that's how we all talk and so forth. But overall, as it were, do we know whether there in fact is a God that created heaven and earth? Well, no. We cannot get outside the language game. We can use it, we can opt for a different game. We can play a different game, and then maybe we don't make these claims about God. But we cannot assess the games. We cannot say this one, over here, they're in this language game, they're really talking about real things. Over here, they're just talking about pretend things, imaginary things, or whatever. There's no master language game with rules that reign supreme over all the other ones. And this created, I think, ongoing difficulties for many within the theological community especially. Many philosophers did buy into this Wittgensteinian view of things, of forms of life and so forth, but I think it was even more attractive to certain folks in theology. D.C. Phillips was a philosopher, I think, that was heavily influenced by Wittgenstein here. He developed this view of the nature of faith statements and so forth. I remember being at a, a theology colloquium at one point at Catholic University, I won't say which one, and it was attended by both philosophers and theologians. This was uh, maybe ten years ago. And one of the theologians was reading a paper on um, defending the project of Christian apologetics. His claim was something like this, that if we think that Christian claims are true, then with respect to other religions, we should be trying to do about three things. We should be trying to show other people why, why Christian claims are attractive. I mean, we can't necessarily demonstrate them, obviously, with absolute certainty, but we should try to give evidence supporting those. We should try to show why the conflicting claims made by other religions are false or don't have much going for them, unpersuasive or whatever. And then we should try to answer attacks on our beliefs by people in other religions or atheists and so forth. And I remember thinking at the time, well, I guess that's worth saying, but it, you know, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? And I don't think there was another theologian in the room who agreed with this person. In fact, some were just infuriated by it. And one person in particular, one theologian, stood up and said, shouldn't we think about religious claims this way, that when we get up and say the creed, for instance, on Sundays, uh, we believe in God the Father Almighty and so forth, we're not really trying to make an assertion. This is what we do. This is what we say. You know, we're Catholic, so we say the creed every Sunday. It's kind of what our community does. So in a sense, you might say, this is Wittgenstein's picture gone wild in a way. I mean, it's 
we're not really making assertions ourselves, even within our own language game. We're just, this is what we do. We get up and say these things. And I think the reply was something like this, which I thought was very sensible, that why would we get up and say these things every week? In fact, why would we show up at all if we didn't think that they were true claims? Don't believers tend to think what they're saying in the creed are truths? This infuriated many people in the room. The claim that somehow the Christian language game, as it were, could be superior to other forms of life or other language games. That how can anybody assert such an obnoxious thing? If there are no criteria for evaluating the different approaches here, then the only way of choosing is a kind of either a pragmatic consideration like Quine had suggested or political reasons or, or maybe other kinds of ambitions. We want to coerce other people into agreeing with us so that we'll control them or something like that. So it's assumed that there can only be kind of irrational, coercive or political reasons for trying to get people to into your language game. It can't be that you're trying to help them toward the truth or to come closer to the truth. Right, Wittgenstein also argued that there was no such thing as what he called a private language. He argues that in learning to use a language in the first place depends on learning the rules of use for various sentences and words in the language. And there aren't any private rules. Rules are by their very nature public. They're what we all have to follow and so forth. And his argument goes like this. If understanding a word would just be attaching that word to some kind of private mental image in your mind. So understanding the word horse is just to be able to conjure up in your own mind a kind of image of a horse, and then you stick this word onto it. Wittgenstein will say, well, then nobody else knows whether you really understand the word correctly, whether you're going to use it correctly. The only way we can know if you really understand what horse is is not if you have something in your mind, but when you see animals out there in, in the um, pasture, you correctly identify them as horses rather than cows or something. Then we can see that you understand it. And he thought this was true. There was no private language, even with respect to, you might say, your own personal sensations, thoughts, and so forth in uh, the privacy, we like to say, of our own mind. He thinks there is no private way of accessing those things. If you say, for instance, I'm really angry right now. Well, how do we know you're angry? Well, he says, we know it because it's of things that are publicly accessible to us. We can tell because the expression on your face, maybe you're frowning, maybe your fists are clenched, other kinds of measurable things. Maybe you're perspiring or your blood pressure is going up or something like this, your tone of voice, your gestures. And in fact, sometimes Wittgenstein, in his defense, I suppose, is the fact that we do sometimes correct people even about their private inner feelings. If somebody says, I'm not angry, I'm fine with it, I'm not angry, we might say, oh, yes, you are. And how do we know that they really are, even though they say they're not? Well, obviously we can't directly inspect the contents of their consciousness, but we can observe things like they're very edgy, they're very defensive about things, they snap at people for no reason, they're keyed up and so forth. I mean, so you say, well, you know, you're obviously you're really angry about this. No, no, I'm fine. You know, even there, even that tone of voice, perfectly fine, you know that they're not fine. One of the late night comedy shows was doing a spoof one time on those commercials that offer things like a pregnancy test and so forth where you, know, you can have your answer in five minutes or one minute or whatever it is. And they were advertising a test for headaches. So the wife says, uh, I think I have a headache. And the husband says, well, honey, let's just see. So they get out their little headache test um, out of the box and there's a voiceover that says, um, Simply take a tube of blood from your arm, place it in this centrifuge, and then, you know, separate it out, 
place in the refrigerator for two hours. Wait two hours. So then, you know, the clock goes by and the husband reappears again. He says, see, honey, he's reading the, the result. You don't have a headache after all. And she says, oh, oh, she leans on him. I'm so relieved, you know. Good thing we did the test so we could know for sure. Now, that's funny because, you know, it's absurd to think that we're going to need some kind of an empirical test to tell us when we're in pain, when we have a headache. But strangely enough, Wittgenstein himself seems to make a claim very like that. He says, if I'm the only one who really knows that I'm in pain, then my doctor and I cannot discuss my pain. He says, we can only discuss the word pain. We can't really discuss my pain because I'm the only one that can access it. The doctor can't. Wittgenstein thinks that in using language, we have to have sort of public criteria for what we're doing and so forth. Otherwise, nobody would ever really acquire the language. Now, turning to the traditional problems of philosophy then, Wittgenstein thinks that philosophy should not be about trying to solve major problems about what there is, you know, whether or not God exists, whether or not human beings have free will, and so on. He thinks often here philosophers have been taken in by a very simplistic understanding of language. So if we want to know, for instance, what willing is, what free will is, he suggests look at how we talk about willing in everyday life. When would we say, I decided to do that? When would we say, I didn't mean to do that, and so forth. As he puts it, well, students in the notes anyway, that appear in the investigations, Wittgenstein says, we must do away with all explanation, and description alone must take its place. The problems of philosophy are solved, not by giving new information, but by arranging what we have always known. Philosophy is a battle against the bewitchment of our intelligence by means of language. So there's this view now in this form of philosophy that there aren't any real philosophical problems in a way. Most of them are illusory. They result from our being taken in in some way by the ways we talk. And so what philosophy is about, he says, isn't explaining things, isn't developing a theory about reality or anything like that. It's about helping to clear away these confusions or straighten people out. It's descriptive. Philosophy is just descriptive of what people are doing in these various games and so forth. Just to take an example of this effort to set aside or unravel or dissolve a philosophical problem, we could look at the nature of thought. What's going on when we're thinking? Well, you know, Wittgenstein's suggestion is, well, what, when do we say a person is thinking? And when do we say that they're not thinking, they're just uttering words kind of mechanically or whatever? And we can't study directly the phenomenon of thought itself. All we could do is analyze the concept. So when would we say, oh yeah, the person was really thinking there, and when would we say, I don't think that they knew what they were talking about. They just, you know, blathered on. So we look at a case where, for instance, if, if little Johnny says, uh, me want a cracker, then we attribute to Johnny really wanting it, the desire to have a cracker, a genuine desire. But if our parrot has practiced over and over again, Polly want a cracker, we don't attribute to the parrot any real desire to have a cracker. I mean, maybe Polly likes crackers, but every time Polly says it, we don't necessarily think, that, oh yeah, she really wants a cracker. Why? Because Wittgenstein will say, we have to look at the rest of the person's behavior, what else they tell us, and so forth. Because in Johnny's case, we could say, well, uh, what kind of cracker do you want? You want one of these soda crackers, or do you want a graham cracker, and so forth. But we couldn't ask Polly the same thing. Well, we could, but it would just be stupid. We'd be making a joke or something. So this leads uh, Wittgenstein to suggest what came to be known as the therapeutic model of philosophy philosophy is therapy. Part of it is therapy for philosophers, in fact. 
getting philosophers stop thinking about themselves as having some kind of special knowledge or some special method for finding out the real ultimate nature of things and so forth. But also philosophy is supposed to act as therapy for other people. Philosophers should get them to recognize that that's a very confused project. That the goal is just analyze ordinary language in kind of sociological way or phenomenological way or whatever, show the interrelationships between different terms within different forms of life and so on. When you've crossed from one form of life to a different form of life, that's a, a project that philosophers could take up and could succeed with. But the goal of philosophy is somehow finding out what's really there or what can meaningfully be said about what's there even. That project, Wittgenstein thinks, was, was very, very confused and hopeless. We always see through a lens, he thinks, and the lens is that of our language. We're trapped in language. To use Wittgenstein's image, we're trapped in it like a fly in a fly bottle, and we cannot really escape. It's not a very endearing image, but that's the image that Wittgenstein leaves us with. And in his history of 20th century philosophy, W.T. Jones concludes about Wittgenstein, we may agree that therapy will show me that I am in my fly bottle and you are in yours. But will therapy get us out of our fly bottles and into a common world? Can it get us into a common world, or does it only get us into still another fly bottle? The investigations leaves this question unanswered, and so it does. I believe that Wittgenstein was very uh, both humbled and frustrated and so on by his experiences in the early going of the positivist project and so forth. Wittgenstein himself always seemed to think there were things that couldn't exactly be expressed in language. There were some realities, there were some truths that couldn't be gotten at, at least by sort of empirical scientific language. Not very many of the positivists shared that outlook, but it continued to trouble Wittgenstein, I think. So when he turns very decidedly away from that earlier project, I think he takes that as a lesson not just for himself but for everybody, that he had made this effort to connect language directly with the world things as they are and so forth, and that had turned out to be totally elusive, complete failure. And he believes that the project itself then should be abandoned, that it's a mistake that has wasted a lot of time in philosophy. The investigations, of course, come out after the death of Wittgenstein, but it's been decades. It's been decades of developing and trying to make the positivist project work, and it hasn't worked. And Wittgenstein's outlook here in this kind of therapeutic model of philosophy continues to have an influence continues to survive. In fact, it's been recently given new life by various versions of, of what's called anti-realism, the thought of Michael Dummett and Richard Rorty. The anti-realists likewise believe that philosophers can only talk about the ways in which language functions, talk about relationships between various concepts and so forth within a certain scheme of things, but can do nothing to show that one is more reasonable than another, or that uh, this is the one that everybody ought to adopt, or this is the way things really are. In fact, now the suggestion is maybe there is no way that things really are. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.